Amen. You don't ever, as an adult, want to challenge one of those children to a quiz off on biblical knowledge. They will eat your lunch. And even if you know the material, as an adult, it takes you so much longer to get up out of the chair and be the first one to stand and to have the opportunity to answer. You just don't have any chance. But I do want to remind you of something important. They talked about the difference they're seeing in their children's lives and in their lives because of regular time in God's Word. And that's what our 91 weeks of transformation journey as an entire congregation is all about. Laying the tracks for you to spend time daily in the Word of God so that you can experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, there are events in Scripture that you just can't remember too often. The birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Those are obvious examples of scriptural events that you can't remember too often. But today I want to suggest there is another event that we can't remember too often. The event we know as Palm Sunday, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And I say that it can't be remembered too often because it reminds us of a reality that we too often forget. And we've got to study that reality today. And then I want to reinforce it by means of some intriguing, fascinating fiction from the pen of C.S. Lewis. Our text will be the Apostle Paul's words as he described the all-consuming passion of his life. Now at first glance, his words appear to have little, if anything, to do with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But the reality is they have everything to do with it. Paul's words are found in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. And here's how he described his core life passion. That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Our topic today is going to be going to Jerusalem. Before we embark on that journey through the Word, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, whenever we come together as a community of faith around your living Word, we need the Holy Spirit to open our understanding and empower us for the application of the truth you reveal to us. So as always, I pray that your Spirit would empower me for instruction and proclamation. And I pray that your Spirit would empower every one of us so that we'll understand that which we need to grasp at this moment in our life and then be able to weave it into the fabric of our life. Father, we're not here just to hear your word. We want to hear it and then we want to do it. We want our minds to be renewed. We want our lives to be transformed. We're not here for information. We're here for transformation. Spirit of the living God, 
Let that happen in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to us today, may the Lord be with you. If you've been following Jesus very long at all, you know that God's revelations often produce mixed emotions. And the words we're considering today from Paul underscore that fact. When Paul spoke of knowing Jesus, walking in Jesus' power, anticipating resurrection, well, his words are an easy read. Those are thoughts that inspire hope and confidence. But when Paul spoke of being conformed to Jesus' death and sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, well, then his words become a hard read, a tough read. And they can invite us to fear and uncertainty. And that's really unfortunate. Because in God's kingdom, death is often the necessary prelude to life. Many times in God's kingdom, something has to die so that something else can live. Now, Jesus understood that. And that's why when Luke, in his account of Jesus' life, described what we know as Palm Sunday, Luke used these words. He said, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. It was strong language. Jesus' friends, Jesus' family, Jesus' disciples had been saying, don't go there. They're laying in wait. They want to murder you. If you walk into that town, they're going to take your life. Don't go to Jerusalem. But Luke said Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He refused to be dissuaded. He refused to be talked out of it. He used to refused to consider any detour. Jesus knew full well walking into Jerusalem would cost him his life. But he went to Jerusalem because he knew his death would result in our lives. His death would bring about our salvation. Now, the salvation that God provides for us through the death of Christ is much, much much more than a ticket to heaven after you breathe your last. The salvation that God provides us is the ticket to the total transformation of your life, the renewing of your thinking, the change of your conduct, the change of your priorities, the change of your values. Scripture refers to that as the fullness of your salvation and it says God wants you to taste the fullness of your salvation but that can't happen that abundant life can't be fully experienced until we're willing to die to some things and that's why Paul talked about being conformed to Jesus death just as Jesus had to die for us to live once we know Jesus we have to die to those sins that prevent us from living as he intended. The sins that prevent us from living in the full freedom of what the Bible calls holiness. And holiness just means completeness. Nothing is missing. Nothing is lacking. Everything is in place. But we have to die to sin before we can taste the fullness of our salvation. And that kind of death isn't automatic. 
And it doesn't happen immediately. And it's not a once and done proposition. Because despite the predictable pain that sin brings into our life, despite the nagging disappointment that sin produces, despite our desire for something better, for lasting relief from sin, we frequently resist God's invitations to go to our Jerusalems. To do that thing we need to do. To confess that sin we need to confess. To make that apology we need to make. To forgive that person we need to forgive. To be open about our struggle when God calls us to do that. We often refuse to go to our Jerusalem, the place where that sin in us will die. Instead, we try to negotiate a compromise. We attempt to redefine our sin, justify our sin, blame others for our sin, ignore our sin, or exchange one sin for another. We seek to bypass Jerusalem and negotiate what feels like a less painful solution. But when we do that, we make the disappointing discovery that the fear of dying to our sin will lead us to hold on to things that feel like lifelines, but they prove to be chains. They're not lifelines that help us, they're chains that bind us. Chains that hinder us from going to our Jerusalem and discovering a more abundant life. Today I want to look at the cast of Palm Sunday and Holy Week because they personified some of the chains that keep us from going to our Jerusalems. And I want to begin by considering the overwhelming crowd, the enthusiastic crowd that greeted Jesus as he rode into the city. Their behavior demonstrated that before we can experience the freedom God intends, we must die to our own ideas of what freedom is and what will bring freedom about. We have to break the chains of false desires and false expectations. And the people in the city of Jerusalem hadn't done that. Because in their minds, their chief problem was not their own sin. Their chief problem was Rome, the nation that was oppressing them. And because they felt Rome was their chief problem, they felt armed rebellion was their only hope. They had a false estimate of their need and how to go about meeting it. So when they put those palm branches in front of Jesus, those palm branches were not symbols of spirit-led worship. Far from it. That's why we never hand out palm branches on Palm Sunday weekend. They were not symbols of worship. They were symbols of nationalism. The palm branch was a symbol of the nation of Israel, the political state of Israel. You see, 200 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, a patriot by the name of Judas Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem. He had begun a revolution against Syria because at that time, Syria was the conqueror and the oppressor. And as he rode into Jerusalem, they laid palm branches before Judas Maccabeus. They were symbols 
of nationalism. The people were looking for political liberty. They were all wearing red hats that had M-I-G-A, make Israel great again. <laughs> that's, that's, that's literally what Palm Sunday was about. Okay. They wanted to make Israel great again. Jesus wanted to make Israel holy. Big difference. That crowd was pumped with nationalistic fervor because at Passover, over two million Jews crowded into Jerusalem. So they had the body count they would need to start rebelling against Rome. And just before he came into Jerusalem, Jesus performed the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And word had spread quickly. Everybody in Jerusalem had seen the posting on Facebook about that miracle. <laughs> they watched the video of Lazarus coming out of the tomb, although it had that seven-second commercial <laughs> interruption right in the middle of it, just as he was about to come out, and then it resumed. But everybody knew about that. Now, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. There was a prophecy that said the Messiah would come on the back of a donkey. He's just raised the man from the dead. Well, think what he could do as a commander-in-chief leading a revolt. If we die fighting against Rome, why couldn't Jesus raise up again? Why couldn't he do the same thing for us? So they're all ready to go after Rome. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow their sin. Because Jesus knew until we allow God to subdue the rebellion in our hearts, we'll never be truly free. We'll just exchange one master for another master. Another example of a chain that will hinder us from going to our Jerusalem was modeled by Judas. Judas was a zealot. That means he had been planning revolt against Rome long before Palm Sunday. He was absolutely convinced that was the only way. And that's why he had joined up with Jesus. Jesus brought so much promise with his charisma, the way the crowds followed him, the way he taught with authority, and the miracles he was able to perform. But Jesus was a reluctant hero in Judas's eyes because he was always talking about loving your enemies. And he was talking about dying. And in Judas's mind, we don't need to love Rome and we don't need Jesus dying. We need Jesus leading the revolt. And so most believe the reason Judas betrayed Jesus was not hatred. Most believe he was attempting to leverage Jesus into action. If I betray him, if the authorities come to take him, then he'll have to use his power and then the rebellion will begin. But lo and behold, Jesus didn't use his power against the soldiers who came to arrest him. Instead, he allowed himself to be taken. He allowed himself to die so that we might live. And Judas was so disillusioned that rather than taking his chains to the curb, he took his own life on a hanging tree. And his tragic behavior reminds us before we can experience the freedom God intends, we must die to our tendency to impose our will upon God. 
to tell God how he ought to manage our life, to tell God how he ought to deal with our struggles. You see, we're always telling God to be the God we want him to be. When in reality, we need to listen and allow God to be the God he knows we need him to be. And the God you want him to be will always be different than the God you need him to be. And then there's Peter, good old Peter. Never short on confidence. And that was a good thing. He was the only one to get out of the boat and walk on water. But have you noticed our weakness is usually our strength once it goes too far? And confidence was his strength, but it went too far and became cocky self-confidence. So he bragged, I could stare down any persecution. Nothing will intimidate me. And then a little teenage servant girl said, aren't you one of those Jesus guys? And he blinked. And then he blinked again. And then he blinked again. And then he went out and wept. And his three denials remind us before we can experience the freedom God intends, we must die to our unfounded confidence in ourselves. We've got to quit saying to God, I've got this. I've got this under control. God, I know how to handle this. I know what I need to do. I know how I need to do it. I know when I need to do it. Lord, I'll take care of this. But the greatest barrier, the greatest chain that keeps us from going to our Jerusalem and dying that we might live is one I haven't yet mentioned, but it was exhibited by almost everybody in the narrative except for Jesus. And I'm talking about fear. Specifically, before we can experience the freedom God intends, we must die to the fear that we will not find a suitable replacement for our sin. Does that sound odd? A suitable replacement for our sin? It really isn't strange. Let me explain why. We don't sin because we wake up in the morning and say, it's a great day to sin. We don't get up in the morning and say, this is what God's Word says, but today I want to do the exact opposite. Why do we sin? And the answer is quite simple. Sin is nothing more than the attempt to meet a felt need in your life, but attempting to meet that need in an inappropriate way. That's what sin is. You can take almost any sin, lust, anger, greed, envy, whatever, and behind it, you'll find the attempt to meet some need, to address an insecurity, to address a fear, to satisfy a pride, whatever. There's always some human need. The need can be appropriate or it can be inappropriate, but sin is simply our attempt to meet some need we feel in our soul, but it's an inappropriate way to meet it. It doesn't solve our problem. It doesn't address our need. It just adds another problem and creates even more needs. So when God invites us to die to a sin, he's inviting us to find a new way to address that need that we feel. But we haven't yet experienced that new way. And we're fearful if we let go of the old way, God might just leave us hanging out in midair with nothing to hold on to. 
and then we'll be disappointed. We convince ourselves that the only way we can deal with this need is the way we've been dealing with it, that nothing else will work. That's a fear that we rarely articulate in those terms, but we consistently demonstrate it by holding on to the same old, same old again and again and again. Now, to illustrate what I mean, this is the point at which I'm going to step away from my words and read the words of C.S. Lewis, as I promised. Let me set the stage. I want to read from the writing of Lewis that's called The Great Divorce. It's an allegory. It's a work of fiction. That'll be obvious. It's a tale of people in hell who take a bus trip to heaven to see if they want to stay there. And nobody does. Because after walking around heaven, they find that they cannot bring themselves to die to their own agendas, their own notions of freedom, their own will, their own self-confidence, their own pride, and their own fears. And so they almost always get back on the bus and go back to hell. Those who come on the bus always look like ghosts because separation from God robs us of the fullness of our humanity. Separation from God leaves us as hollow caricatures of human life. One man appears as he comes off the bus with a small red lizard on his shoulder. The lizard represents his long-time sin, that sin he refuses to die to. As he comes off the bus, it's twitching its tail and it's whispering in his ear. And at first, he reacts in anger, telling it to shut up. But then, he smiles and consents to its advice. And he begins to limp off away from heaven. And by the way, people often pose this question, how could a loving God send people to hell? A loving God doesn't send people to hell. People who don't want God limp away from heaven. There's a big difference. If you don't want God, he doesn't force himself on you. So heaven has an inside, and it has an outside for those who don't want to be inside. If God forced people who don't want him to come inside, heaven would be hell for them. So God doesn't send us, we limp away. And that point, at this point, I want to pick up the story in Lewis's words. As the man begins to limp off toward the bus, an angel asks, off so soon? Yes, he replied, thanks for your hospitality, but it's, it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, the lizard, his stuff won't do up here, but he won't stop. So I guess I'll just have to go home. Well, would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the ghost. Well, then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step in his direction. Look out, the man said. You're burning me. Keep away. Well, don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him. 
I hardly meant to bother you with anything that drastic. But it's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, I'm open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I was only thinking about silencing it. May I kill it, said the angel. Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time, said the angel. May I kill it? Please, responded the ghost. I never meant to be such a nuisance. Don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure everything will be all right now. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure that I'll now be able to keep it in order. I think a gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all, said the angel. You don't think so, said the ghost? I'll think over what you've said very carefully. In fact, I would let you kill it now, but I'm not feeling well. It would be silly to do it now. I would need to be in good health for the operation, maybe some other day. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, cried the ghost. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me in the process. Not so, said the angel. Well, you're hurting me now. Well, I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. I know you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Let me get an opinion from my doctor, and then I'll come back again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking before I even knew? It would have been all over by now if you had done that because I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Do I have your permission? At that point, the angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever, and how could you live? I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't those dreams better than nothing? And I'll be good. I admit I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. Have I your permission, said the angel. I know it'll kill me, said the ghost. No, it won't. But suppose it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I can kill it? Go on. Get it over. Do what you like. God help me. The ghost screamed in agony as the angel closed his grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and flung it broken back and dead to the turf. I'm done for, gasped the ghost as he reeled backwards. But in the ensuing moments, the ghost began to take on flesh and bone and became a man. 
while the lizard went through radical changes and grew larger until it became a great stallion. The newly made man flung himself at the feet of the burning one, the angel, and embraced them. And when he arose, his face was shining with tears of love. Then he leaped upon the horse's back, waved farewell, and off they went to the mountains of God's heaven. The impulses that had been the ghost's enemy became a back upon which he could ride. The characters of Holy Week, Jesus' determination, the story of the red lizard combined remind us that we carry our worst enemies within us. Our worst enemies aren't them. What they did, what they're still doing, what they don't know. Because if they're our worst enemies, we don't control them, which means we have zero hope. But our worst enemies are within us. Our false notions of what freedom is and how God should produce it. Our stubborn will that wants to tell God how he should work in our life. Our self-sufficiency that says, I've got this. Our pride and our fears that if we let go of that thing that has been meeting a need, even though it's been meeting it badly, we'll be left with nothing. Those are the things that keep us from going to our Jerusalems. When God says, if you'll come over here and do this and die, then you'll really be able to live. But the good news is, since we play such a big part in our unrest, that means we can play a part in our freedom. The sins that are in our life are there because we gave them permission. We can also say we don't want it anymore and follow God's invitation to our Jerusalem. And I want to leave you with a final thought. When you start toward your Jerusalem, to that confession, to that apology, to whatever that will be necessary, your first steps will be the hardest steps. Your easiest steps will be the last steps. And here's why I suggest that. The story of the prodigal father. It's not really the story of a prodigal son because the word prodigal means lavish, ridiculous. And it was God who was lavish in the story, not the boy. His hardest steps came when he was eating the pig food in the pig pen. A boy who had been raised in wealth. And he said... I'd be much better off in my father's house. His hard steps were at the beginning. When he's thinking to himself, if I go to my Jerusalem, if I go back home, what will my father say? What will my brother say? What will the servants say? What will the community say? What will people think of me? How will they treat me? But he took those first steps. And then something remarkable, the scripture tells us while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. That means the father had been watching every day. And he didn't watch him take the final steps home. He went out and met him and took him and helped him with the final steps home.
if you take those first hard steps toward your Jerusalem. The loving Father, the good, good Father, He'll run to meet you. And He'll help you to get to your Jerusalem. And He'll help you to die, just as He helped His own Son to die, and then to discover the amazing life on the other side of that death. When we hold on to sin thinking, I, I don't know if I could cope without this, we're holding on to a chain. God says, come to Jerusalem, die to that. Let me give you something so much better. That's the takeaway from Palm Sunday. Now I want to invite you to erect a chapel in your own soul and take a few moments and just ask God, God, what's my takeaway today? In light of this truth, what do you want to say to me and what are you calling me to do? And if he's pointing you to a specific Jerusalem, this would be a great time to make the commitment to take those steps, knowing he'll meet you on the way. But take some moments, ask God what your takeaway is today, and then respond appropriately, and then I'll come back and close. Father, you know the needs of our heart and you know we often look in all the wrong places and to all the wrong things to meet those needs. And then we can't envision life without our sin. As we contemplate Jesus going to his Jerusalem, give us the courage to go to ours. To do that thing, to say that word, to extend that apology, to ask for forgiveness to go home and destroy something, sign off something. Help us to go to our Jerusalem. Be conformed to your death that we might know the power of your resurrection in our lives. And just as Jesus' death resulted in our life, teach us to die so that somebody who currently don't knows Jesus, don't know Jesus, might live. And give us grace and faith for the journey, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.